Now what? I don't know if you've ever said that to yourself in any kind of a situation in life. What do we do now? Now what? I thought probably the safest way to maybe explore the concept a little bit is to, to think about, you know, a, a young man's journey towards marriage and family life and fatherhood and all that great stuff. He, you know, boy meets girl and it's, now what? Well, ask her out, you dummy, you know? So boy asks girl out, and they go out, and they have a wonderful time, and they get to know each other, and, and, and boy realizes, I really, 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 really love this girl. Now what? Well, dude, pray and ask God if she's the one, and, and if so, then buy a ring. So boy gets that all worked out, and he buys a ring, and it's like, now what? Okay, you, know, you join the dots, propose. So boy proposes, and girl says yes, and now what? Plan, plan for the wedding day. And okay, so they're planning, and you know how this goes, right? And then uh, the wedding happens, and it's a wonderful day, and it's like, now what? <laughs> Honeymoon, woo, okay, honeymoon's over, you get back home, and it's, well, now what? It's life, man, it's, it's, there was the wedding, but now there's the marriage. You live, and you learn to love, and all that fun stuff that goes with after the wedding. And then uh, baby comes, now what? <laughs> Well, there's no uh, return to sender attached with baby, and uh, anyhow. You know where I'm going with this. There's a lot of now what's in life that are, are pretty easy to figure out, and we have no problem navigating them. And I think for the most part, we do really good. And if we ever get stuck, we have friends that we can turn to. We have parents. We have people who love us, who cheer for us. They walk us through stuff. But let me tell you something. There's a now what that happens to a lot of believers that is not so smooth. That really is a, a difficult transition to make. And it is one where, if truth be told, all of us have a time in our life where there wasn't really a now what after. And of course, I'm talking about when you blow it, when you have sinned, when you have come to a place of absolutely breaking the heart of God, of violating His commandments, of disobeying profoundly, of hurting another human being incomprehensibly, and you you ask for forgiveness, you confess, you try to deal with a wounded, regretting conscience, and you're kind of stuck because, now what? How do I get back on my feet? How do I move on? Do I just get up and try harder the next time? Is that, is that what this really comes down to? Today's message is based on Psalm 51. Thank you so much, Elaine, for reading that this morning. Um, 
Let me just tell you, I guess just right from my heart, I've been praying certain verses from Psalm 51 for our congregation now for a number of months. Wednesdays are a special day for me, a time of, well, let's just say it's a time of intercession. And portion of Psalm 51, uh, I have prayed not just for myself, but for our congregation and trusting God that he who, who authored these verses, he who put these thoughts into David's heart to pen, he who understands what these verses are really saying would be the one to honor them in the life of our congregation. So today what I'm going to do is kind of take you through a bit of what I would call maybe a teaching sermon. Because hopefully by the end of today, not only will you be able to pray these verses for yourself, but more importantly, pray them for our congregation and to pray them as a congregation. It's one thing for us to pray for ourselves and to pray for others, but to corporately say, God, we come before you and we pray this way because this is what we genuinely need from you that only you can give. That's our goal. And that is where we are going today. Now, the Psalms. You know, a lot of times, I think we forget the fact that as we're leafing through the Psalms, Psalm 23, Psalm 51, Psalm 139, all these incredible, incredible moving um, portions of Scripture that, that really are, are just powerful in terms of what they say and articulate, that these are poems. When they were originally written by the Hebrew authors, they were poems, and they were poems that were given to choir leaders and worship leaders and instrumentalists. And they were then set to music and then brought to the congregation and sung as a congregation. Now, I let my mind run wild a little bit. And I thought, I wonder how the, the songwriter... And the compositionist, well, Tyler, you, you probably have a better word for that. I wonder what he went through when somebody handed in the lyrics to Psalm 51. Here's a poem, and we all know what this poem's about. Wink, wink. Um, you need to put this to music, and we're going to sing this. I wonder how King David felt every time he heard this sung among the people of Israel. This beautiful psalm is a penitential psalm. In other words, it is a God, I am so deeply sorry for my sin kind of poem and psalm. As a matter of fact, there's only seven of them in all of the psalms that carry this tone of penitence. This psalm in Psalm 38 are the only two psalms where David is actually confessing sin to God. It is deeply heartfelt and moving, and some theologians say that David has, it's like he has looked for every word to describe sin and the ugliness of it and included it in this beautiful psalm. He's really penitent from his heart, unlike this guy. 
Now, for those of you I'm dating myself, anybody know who this is? Calvin Hobbes. Thank goodness somebody remembered. I would be supremely embarrassed. But follow the comic, please. This, this is a little brief entertainment for you. Young Calvin sees Susie Dirks, whom he despises, considers her a slimy girl, and has the opportune time to whack her with a water balloon. And of course, dear Calvin now is penitent for his sin. Oh, what an awful thing I did. How I regret it now. I hereby resolve to change my evil ways. Oh, remorse, remorse. My penitent sinner shtick needs work. <laughs> you didn't get that, did you? Maybe you got it, you just don't care. Fair enough. David has not done this. It is a genuine, sincere cry for mercy. Now, for those of you who don't know really what Psalm 51 is all about, let me just give you a very, very brief kind of like TV guide version or analysis. It was during the spring wars between Israel and the Ammonites and Gigabites and all those dudes. And for whatever reason, springtime, David has gotten soft and lazy. So he's strolling around on the palace roof and he sees a beauty. She's bathing. Now, you know, I, I kind of thought to myself, like, the temple is the central place in Jerusalem. And, you know, it's not like you could just buy property across from the temple. So he must have had amazing eyesight, but I just don't want to go there because I'm thinking, how could you have seen her far away? I mean, anyhow. But uh, David being David, it was pitter-patter, let me have her. And so he sends people out to get her. The next thing you know, she's pregnant. She goes back to him. And David decides to give her husband a promotion after trying to get him back home to maybe spend some time with her so he can cover up the pregnancy. Their husband has more integrity than him and refuses to go to his wife. So David says, well, you know what? We got a great promotion plan for you. Front lines. And he goes to the front lines and he's killed. David takes his wife, mission accomplished, everything's swept under the carpet until the prophet Nathan arrives, tells him a story, essentially pulling David out of denial and secrecy, only to say, you are the one who has committed this crime. Guilty of adultery, murder. The man after God's own heart finds himself completely stripped down, crushed, laid naked before God, essentially, exposed, deeply visible, his sin as big as Mount Everest. And he, he cries out. There were consequences for his sin. We don't want to go into that. It's another story, but you can read all about it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But throughout Psalm 51, we see this movement. We see this movement of David being conscious of his sin and crying out for mercy, confessing his sin, and then crying out to God to be cleansed from his sin. 
And then all of a sudden, instead of getting just stuck in the same old pattern of sin, be convicted of sin, confess sin, be cleansed of sin, try harder, sin, in this cycle that so many people seem to get caught in. David, in this psalm, this prayer, cries out to God for renewal. In other words, now what? This is what. And again, I go back to these beautiful verses which we're going to explore this morning. This is the now what of Psalm 51. This is the now what for everyone who has ever sinned deeply and has broken faith with God and has come clean, has confessed their sin, has sought to repent, who has said to themselves, God, I don't want to go back there. I want to be a new person. I don't want to do the same old, same old all over again. I want a new start. These are the verses that really ultimately become your, your guide, your tutorial in now what? The, the next steps after you have come clean with God. One thing I want to just highlight before we actually get into unpacking this is I just want you to see something. This is seldom ever addressed whenever I've heard this preached or taught, but I want to highlight it this morning because I think it's so critical to us. I want you to look at the second verse or the second part of each verse and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. When Hebrew people wrote poems, there was a, there were a very, very intentional methodology around the things that they wrote. They would write a first verse or a first phrase, and they wanted the second one that followed up the first one to either echo what they already said or to extend it even further than what they've already said. And so a lot of times, and I've been guilty of it too, where, where I've gone to Psalm 51 and I treated each one of these lines as an individual spiritual truth. To save you from the embarrassment of doing the same thing, you only to have somebody correct you, they're not. It's a self-contained verse, but with each of the first statements, the second one that is a follow-up is the one, in this particular case, where David is saying, you know what I'm asking, and I need your Holy Spirit to help me with this. Now, it's kind of letting the cat out of the bag before we go into this message, but it's important to realize this now because as we go into this, we need to realize that in the Old Testament, people's understanding of the Holy Spirit is much, much different than ours. We kind of have been trained by theologians and systematic teachers 
to view the Holy Spirit as just this person who does certain things and we've got him categorized and placed in a box. Whereas in Hebrew thought, the Spirit of God was not some impersonal force or a person in a little box that did certain things. He was greater than all of that. He was moving. He was fluid. He was present. He would do things. Um, he was involved in so many of God's works and acts that I think unless you really see it through Old Testament eyes, you would restrict the Holy Spirit to just doing a few things that you have read in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was the breath of God entering Adam. Did you know that? The word spirit in the Old Testament is also translated wind, breath, movement, at times life, spirit. So there's a lot more going on here. And instead of kind of waiting till the end of the message to, to pull this out, I want to get it out there now. So as we're kind of tracking together, hopefully this will make some sense. First of all, they, okay, by Calvin. <laughs> David prays, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What's he asking for? He's asking for a spirit-established heart. David had enough sense to know that what he was asking of from God was something only God himself could do. In the same way that God spoke in creation and created out of nothing the world and the, the universe and all that we have here and enjoy, David also realized that deep in the center and the core of him, he could not fix this thing, this thing full of emotion and longing and passion and desire and hunger and motives and this thing at times that can become like a wild stallion, almost out of control. David realized, God, you have to do something. You have to purify this. Create it so that it becomes pure again. Through your Holy Spirit, restore stability and steadfastness to me. And it's not so much that David was asking God to, quote unquote, give me a steadfast spirit. Like sometimes we, you know, we, we, we use this very loosely. Oh, she's got a good spirit. Or he's got uh, an, a courageous spirit. As if we kind of own these possessions apart from God, that we are self-made people. This is not what the verse is saying. David is saying, God, do inside of me what only you can do in the same way that you brought existence out of nothing when you created the world. And through your Holy Spirit, make me stable and steadfast. Make this heart 
one that doesn't get kicked around like a soccer ball. Like a strong anchor. It's steadfast. It's immovable. It doesn't get tossed around. Interestingly enough, we know that through the new birth, as was promised in Ezekiel 36, when, when the prophet said, speaking on God's behalf, I will give you a new heart, I will put a new spirit within you, that that really was a work of God that we experience when we were born again. But there are times when our heart, yes, our born-again heart, starts getting beaten and bruised and battered by life, by people, by careless, hurtful words, by accusations, by conflict, by fear, by distress. And this, this heart that's supposed to be steadfast now is, is slippery, it's, it's wounded, it's crushed, it's beaten, it's battered, it's bruised. For anybody who has ever genuinely repented from sin, you understand how volatile, how tender your heart is afterwards. It's like your, your, your heart's this, this ball that's swimming in a, in, a, in, a, in a big tub of regret and memory and shame. And, oh, if I only thought this through, if I only had a, if I didn't do this, and it just goes round and round and round. You see, that's not a steadfast heart. David is saying, God, take my heart and make it central again. Make it steadfast. But I need your spirit to do it. And only your spirit can keep my heart steadfast. A spirit-secured presence. David says, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, the King James Version says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, right? The, the word banish or cast literally means to take something and to throw it as hard as you can away. It, it's like, kind of like when you have a bad coal and you're blowing your nose, like, ooh! Hopefully you do that. In the Old Testament, these were strong words because um, this was included in the law when God would say to his people, now listen, if you go after false gods and you start messing around with foreign deities and you prostitute yourself to them, you take them to be real gods as I am the only real God. I will thrust you, I will cast you out of my presence. I will take you like a dirty rag and I'll fling you away. Presence, interestingly. You know the modern colloquial term we, we, we say, well, we don't say it too often. It, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, 
it's just one of these things that, that, that you say maybe out of desperate frustration, but normally you try not to say. You say something like, oh, will you just get out of my face? Right? I mean, hopefully you don't say that. But sometimes maybe you just break down. You hear people say that all the time, though, right? Uh, there are individuals who just, for whatever reason, you know, get out of my face. Just, what are they saying? Are they saying, keep inches and feet away from my little literal face? No, they're, they're equating face with space. But what they're saying is essentially this, this, there's this circle around me that I, I don't even want you to enter. So please just leave, go away, and don't come near. When David says to God, do not cast me or don't banish me from your presence, he's literally saying, don't fling me away from your face. The presence of the Lord in the Old Testament is translated by the word face. So when we think of being in the presence of God, we're, we're literally having God's face be on us. And that's why the beautiful priestly blessing in, in Numbers 6, right? Let, let your face shine on me, right? Meaning that God's favor, his goodwill, is wrapped up with his, his proximity to you. Like to be in the presence of God is, is like to be staring your loved one face to face, looking into their eyes. That's how close and intimate this is understood. And very interestingly, that in the Old Testament, this is supposed to shape the way we think of the presence of God. For us, we equate the presence of God with nice feelings, right? Oh, I was in a worship service, and I felt good, and, and oh, I, I, I feel so good. Feeling, feeling schmealings. When we talk about being in the presence of God, we're talking about having God look at us. And watch us from close up. It's not just about our feelings. It's about his beautiful face looking down on us. Kind of makes you want to take your worship of him maybe a little more heartfelt, doesn't it? Now, he says, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Literally, what he is saying is, don't take yourself away from me by removing your Holy Spirit. Because where your spirit is, you are. Where you are, your spirit is. There's no separation. There's no this sense of, you know, the Holy Spirit's working in this person's life and God's somewhere on his throne. You know, it really challenges our understanding of the Trinity when we talk about, well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes it is very, very difficult to comprehend the fact that all of God is present through his Holy Spirit. And David, it's almost like he's taking a coin and, and he's addressing both sides of the coin. He's saying, listen, your, your face, your presence, don't throw me out of there. But by the way, don't take yourself away from me either. Don't remove yourself from me. Because if you leave, if you go... Even for a minute, I'll not stand. One of the most heartbreaking, scary verses in the Old Testament is in the story of Samson. 
when he continually provoked God with his disobedience on and on and on, and then he wakes up one day and he tells a secret to Delilah. Man, be careful when a girl wants to give you a haircut. That's, that, 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 yeah. Forgive me, that should have been inside voice. I said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And what does he say? He says, I will get up and do as I have done before. In other words, I've messed around with sin, but I'm pretty good at getting myself out of a mess, so I'll just do what I've always done before. And the terrifying part of the following scripture to that self-thought that he had was, but he did not realize that the Lord had left him. God had withdrew his Holy Spirit. And Samson, judge, anointed man of God, was powerless in a situation whereas before he was so powerful. And David's saying now, now what, God? Now what? Please, as I get back on my feet, as I go on, as I don't just get up and try and try and try again, but as I get up and go on, I don't want to be thrown out of your presence, and I don't want your presence to be taken away from me by the Spirit of God leaving. I need your Spirit with me every way, every day. I need your Spirit. Thirdly, restore to me or restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Now what? David prays for a spirit-sustained joy. Restore simply means bring back. Put something back in its place. It got removed. It got taken away. Bring it back. The gladness of heart that comes when God delivers a person from a situation that they had no chance of getting out of is what David's speaking about. He's not saying the joy of my salvation. He's saying the joy of your deliverance. That's literally what he's saying. He's saying, restore to me the gladness of heart that I used to walk in when I got myself caught in a situation, not by my own sin or foolishness, but when I was in a situation and you delivered me, when you came through for me, when you did what only you can do, you delivered me, God. Do that. Grant that that, that comes back to me. What a prayer. He finishes off by saying, and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Boy, oh boy, I, I tell you the number of times I've heard this preached and taught and, and everything from, boy, God wants to just give you willpower and God wants to give you obedience and all this stuff. This is not what it's saying. I mean, I'm guilty. I'll be the first one to say that that's how I preached it before or taught it before. David is saying, listen, when you deliver me, 
and that gladness of heart returns, then let that be sustained and strengthened and nurtured by your spirit willingly. Let your spirit who is so willing to help us poor mortal creatures come along and take me and sustain that joy as I go on. We all know that the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? But see, we have the advantage of being New Testament people looking back at the Old Testament and backfilling interpretations because of what we now have. But if you look at it from David's vantage point, David's saying, when you came through, when you delivered me, when my back was against the wall and I had nowhere to turn, no one to turn to, and you delivered me from my enemies, how many times, right, in the Psalms, that you delivered me from their traps that they set against me. Oh God, you delivered me from the pit when I was deep down and, and I, everything was coming to you delivered me that joy, that gladness of heart that, that overwhelmed me when I was set back into a safe place. Holy Spirit, sustain that. You're willing to do that. You want to do that. You're generous enough to keep doing that in my life. That's what David's praying. Now, is there a point to all this? Is there a point to all this? I guess it's just another, okay, you know, another one of Sunday morning messages where, okay, you know, God, help me, you know, give me your Holy Spirit, make it better, kiss the boo-boo, blah, blah, blah. You know, let's all go home and be happy now. The Holy Spirit's going to be there. No. I want you to hear David's heart. And I think sometimes we gloss over the significance of what he's saying here. It's simple, but it's profoundly significant. Let, let me just play around with this for a bit, okay? Um, do all the wonderful things that I ask for God so that I can uh, get up and tell people what a purified saint I am. Uh, God created me a new heart. Uh, return the joy of my salvation so that I can just have a fun time worshiping you and just enjoy you and just bask in the presence of God and, and this just be my all in all. No. David's saying, do what you need to do in me and when I'm walking in renewal, when I know the goodness and strength of your presence, your spirit is with me. When I'm walking in the joy that's being sustained by your Holy Spirit because you've delivered me from this mess, I've got something to share. I've got something to say. Whether you want to call it evangelism, outreach, sharing your testimony, mission. The point is, is whatever or whenever God renews us and strengthens us and revives us and, and restores that heart to us, it's not just so that we can have one more 
Whoa! Fun, spiritual, whoop-de-doo time in worship. And just go home and go, my, I, I have felt so good today. It was so wonderful. God, you're so good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for just making me feel good. David's saying, my life, which is the result of your work in me, is going to be the very conversation I will have with, with the rebellious, with sinners. Very interesting. He said, then I will teach the rebellious your ways. He didn't say, then I will tell them off, or then I will shame them, or then I will make them feel guilty for saying, well, look at what I got. You need to have what I got because you don't have that. No. He's saying, I'm going to teach people who are far away from God how life can really, really be lived in joy and gladness and freedom and renewal and meaning and purpose because I've blown it, I've been restored, and now I get to live it out. That's what David's saying. Amen. Folks, this is so critical because you and I, every day, are in conversation with people who are far from God, who don't know Him, or are not convinced. And as Paul says, your life, your life smells. It's either going to be the fragrance of life or it's going to smell like dead flowers after a funeral. I don't want to smell like dead flowers. If there's a cologne for dead flowers, you buy it. Don't send it to me. But the truth is, is there are times in our spiritual journey where we do smell like dead flowers. We got the story right. Jesus came for us. He gave up his life for us. He died for our sins. We can have uh, experience forgiveness and, and a new life in Christ. But, but there's two things happening. People are hearing the story, but they're smelling you. Many, many years ago, there was a little man who always wanted to talk to me on Sunday mornings because he had a position of leadership. And he had seriously bad breath. And I kid you not, he would come up right to me, like literally. His nose would be like that. And at first being the polite young pastor that I was, I started to do this, right? I'll do, I'll do the sideways so you'll get the point, right? It'd be like this. Yes, brother. Yes, I understand. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. 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 I felt like I was doing leadership limbo. But then after a while, I started backing up. And he followed me. There's nowhere else to go because I was against the wall. Please don't ever do that to people. 
I mean, I, I, I would just like to believe that overall, in the grand scheme of things, we are just socially conscious people. We're aware of people's space. But you know, if you're doing this and somebody's backing up, it's a cue. See, I keep these in my pocket for prayer time. See, some of you, you look at me. Uh, I know you've caught me doing this, right? And I'll be up here and be prayer time. Be like, no, I'm not chewing gum, okay? So don't go tattle on me or something. Oh, you should reprimand Pastor Mark because he's chewing gum during the prayer time. How ungodly of him. <laughs> this is a sign of my respect for you. Right? Thank you. God bless you, Phil. There's nothing worse than a life that stinks. And when I mean that, okay, I want to be encouraging, but you have to understand, right? I'm preaching to myself first, and you get to listen to me preach to myself. That guy gonna make it better, more easier to swallow. Sometimes when I speak, I'm preaching to myself. You get to hear me preach to myself. You say you got issues. Yeah, I do. <laughs> you talk to my wife; she has to live with me. The point is, is that there are times when our life is stale. The presence of God is—I mean, we don't know. You know, like He never leaves us or forsakes us, but it's what's going on inside of us, and we stink. We don't smell good. We have spiritual B.O., spiritual bad breath. And, and, you know, people get a whiff of it, and they're kind of like backing up. And it's like, this beautiful psalm is a way of smelling good again. It's a way of having nice, fresh, spiritual breath. Breath, spirit, right? God breathed into Adam. Jesus said to the disciples, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. The breath of God in us. The presence of God with us. We have a story of what God is doing in and through our lives. It's a beautiful story. But we, we, we share his story. And then we share how his story took our lives and put it into his story, right? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, please. Well, how do we conclude this today? We're actually doing really good. Folks, it's 1130. Some of you can't believe it's 1130. What does this beautiful psalm mean for us today? First of all, it's a follow-up to genuine repentance. When you and I sincerely repent, and, you know, I mean, David's sins, they were, they were massive, right? They're, the truth is that a lot of us just don't do the big things. It's just accumulation of a lot of little things, right? But the point being, nevertheless, is that when God says, listen, stop that. I'm not letting you get away with this. This, this temper of yours, enough. 
or this gossiping, backbiting tongue of yours has got to stop. Or this jumping to conclusions and always thinking evil about everybody else's motives. I mean, your motives are always pure, but everyone else's motives are always wrong. Enough. This being cheap and refusing to be generous. Enough of this. You need to change. It doesn't matter what the issue is. Is that when we're conscious of our sin and we confess and we ask God to cleanse us, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now what? Now what do we do afterwards? We do what Psalm 51, 10 to 12 says. We say, God, create in me a pure heart and renew a right spirit within me. Don't fling me from your, from your presence, but, and please don't take your spirit from me. Let me experience once again the joy of your deliverance, that your Holy Spirit can carry this and hold this willingly as I go through life. That's what we're praying. And, and God, as, as I experience this, then let it lead me to people let, me lead, let it lead me to people who need this. Amen? It's a motivation for moving beyond repentance. Some of us are just stuck in that cycle of we sin, we confess, we sin, we confess, we try harder, sin, confess, try harder, sin, confess, try harder. There's a way off of that wheel. And ultimately... As I said, I know I'm getting redundant at this point, but we have a story to share. Not only his, but ours is important. Heavenly Father, we thank you. What an incredible king this man was. How he went from being a shepherd to a courageous soldier, a warrior, a musician, a man who had the distinct honor of being called the man after God's own heart. And yet that heart got him in trouble at times. That heart followed his eyes where it ought not to have looked. And that heart led him into unimaginable things that cost many lives. And that heart full of shame tried to live in the shadows and in secret and hide from the penetrating gaze of God. Thank you that there was a prophet, Nathan, who himself was willing to put his life on the line by going to the king and saying, God loves you too much to let you hide this secret. So here we are learning from his example being challenged by this beautiful poem, being um, instructed by these words to live in such a way as to experience your renewal. So this is the time in a service where we say to you, God, now what? Now what do we do? Well, there's all kinds of things we can do, but we want to do the things
that you want us to do. So, Lord, we will present ourselves before you now. One of us, some of us, whoever. And we'll ask you, God, to do what only you can do in our midst. Because no matter how hard we try, we can't scrub our heart clean. We can't do any kind of spiritual gymnastics to guarantee that your presence will be with us, that your Holy Spirit will be around us. We need you. We need your joy that it would translate into strength. So would you meet us now